For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We assert that the decrees of God are not only immutable as to himself, it being inconsistent with his nature to alter in his purposes or change his mind, but that they are immutable likewise with respect to the objects of those decrees, so that whatsoever God hath determined concerning any individual person or thing shall surely and infallibly be accomplished in and upon them. Hence we find that he actually showeth mercy on whom he declared to show mercy, and hardeneth whom he resolved to harden. Romans 9.18 For his counsel shall stand, and he will do all his pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 Consequently, his eternal predestination of men and things must be immutable as himself, and so far from being reversible, can never admit to the least variation. Position 3. Although, to use the words of Gregory, God never swerves from his decree, yet he often varies in his declarations, that is, always sure and immovable. These are sometimes seemingly discordant. So when he gave sentence against the Ninevites by Jonah, saying, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, the meaning of the words is not that God absolutely intended at the end of that space to destroy the city, but that should God deal with those people according to their deserts, they would be totally extirpated from the earth and should be so extirpated unless they repented speedily. Likewise, when he told King Hezekiah by the prophet Isaiah, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. The meaning was that with respect to the second causes and considering the king's bad state of health and emaciated constitution, he could not, humanly speaking, live much longer. But still, the events show that God had immutably determined that he should live fifteen years more, and in order to that had put into his heart to pray for the blessing decreed. Just as in the case of Nineveh, lately mentioned, God had resolved not to overthrow that city then. And in order to the accomplishment of his own purpose, in a way worthy of himself, made the ministry of Jonah the means of leading that people to repentance. All which, as it shows, that God's absolute predestination does not set aside the use of means, so does it likewise prove that, however various the declarations of God may appear, to wit, when they proceed on a regard had to natural causes, his counsels and designs stand firm and immovable, and can neither admit of alteration in themselves, nor of hindrance in their execution. See this further explained in Booser in Romans 9, where you will find the certainty of the divine appointment solidly asserted and unanswerably vindicated. New chapter, page 62. The Omnipotence of God. 4. We have come to consider the Omnipotence of God. Position 1. God is, in the most unlimited and absolute sense of the word, Almighty. Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, 
and there is nothing too hard for thee. Jeremiah 32.17 With God all things are possible. Matthew 19.26 The schoolmen very properly distinguished the omnipotence of God in absolute and actual. By the former, God might do many things which he does not. By the latter, he actually does whatever he will. For instance, God might, by virtue of his absolute power, have made more worlds than he has. He might have eternally saved every individual of mankind without reprobating any. On the other hand, he might, and that with the strictest justice, have condemned all men and saved none. He could, had it been his pleasure, have prevented the fall of angels and men, and thereby have hindered sin from having footing in and among his creatures. By virtue of his actual power he made the universe, executes the whole counsel of his will, both in heaven and earth, governs the influences both men and things according to his own pleasure, fixes the bounds which they shall not pass, and in a word worketh all in all. Isaiah 45.17, Amos 3.6, John 5.17, Acts 17.26, 1 Corinthians 12.6. Position 2. Hence it follows that, since all things are subject to the divine control, God not only works efficaciously on his elect, in order that they may will and do that which is pleasing in his sight, but does likewise frequently and powerfully suffer the wicked to fill up the measure of their iniquities by committing fresh sins. Nay, he sometimes, but for wise and gracious ends, permits his own people to transgress, for he has the hearts and wills of all men in his own hand, and inclines them to good or delivers them up to evil as he sees fit, yet without being the author of sin, as Luther, Booker, Augustine, and others have piously and scripturally taught. This position consists of two parts. One, that God efficaciously operates on the hearts of his elect and is thereby the sole author of all the good they do. See Ephesians 3.20, Philippians 2.13, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Hebrews 13.21 St. Augustine takes up no fewer than 19 chapters in proving that whatever good is in men and whatever good they are enabled to do is solely and entirely of God who says he works in holy persons all their good desires their pious thoughts and their righteous actions and yet these holy persons though thus wrought upon by God will and do all these things freely, for it is he who rectifies their wills, which being originally evil are made good by him, and which wills after he hath set them right and made them good, he directs to good actions and to eternal life. Therein he does not force their wills, but makes them willing. 2. That God often lets the wicked go on to more ungodliness which he does a negatively by withholding that grace which alone can restrain them from evil b remotely by the providential concourse and meditation of second causes which second causes meeting and acting in concert 
with the corruption of the reprobate's unregenerate nature produce sinful effects. C. Judiciously or in a way of judgment, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 And if the king's heart, why not the hearts of all men? Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Limitations 3.38 Hence we find that the Lord bid Shimei curse David, 2 Samuel 16.10, that he moved David himself to number the people, compare 1 Chronicles 21.1 with 2 Samuel 24.1, stirred up Joseph's brethren to sell him into Egypt, Genesis 1.20, positively and immediately hardened the heart of Pharaoh, Exodus 4.21, delivered up David's wives to be defiled by Absalom, 2 Samuel 12.11, and chapter 16.22, sent a lying spirit to deceive Ahab, 1 Kings 22, verses 22-23, and mingled a perverse spirit in the midst of Egypt that is made that nation perverse, obstinate, and stiff-necked, Isaiah 19.14. To cite other instances would be almost endless, and after these quite unnecessary, all being summed up in that express passage, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Isaiah 45.7. See further 1 Samuel 16.14, Psalm 105.25, Jeremiah 13. Verses 12 and 13, Acts 2:23, Acts 4:28, Romans 11:8, Second Thessalonians 2:11. Every one of which implies more than a bare permission of sin. Bucer asserts this not only in the place referred to below, but continually throughout his works, particularly on Matthew chapter 6 verse 2 where this is the sense of his comments on that petition lead us not into temptation it is abundantly evident from most express testimonies of scripture that God occasionally in the course of his providence puts both elect and reprobate persons into circumstances of temptation by which temptation are meant not only those trials that are of an outward effective nature but those also that are inward and spiritual, even such as shall cause the persons so tempted actually to turn aside from the path of duty, to commit sin, and involve both themselves and others in evil. Hence we find the elect complaining, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and harden our hearts from thy fear? Isaiah 63:17. But there is also a kind of temptation which is particular to the non-elect whereby God in a way of just judgment makes them totally blind and obstinate inasmuch as they are vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. See also his exposition on Romans 9. Luther reasons to the very same effect. Some of his words are these. It may seem absurd to human wisdom that God should harden 
blind and deliver up some men to a reprobate sense, that he should first deliver them over to evil, and then condemn them for that evil. But the believing spiritual man sees no absurdity at all in this, knowing that God would never be a whit less good, even though he should destroy all men. And again, God worketh all things in all men, even wickedness in the wicked, for this is one branch of his own omnipotence. He very properly explains how God may be said to harden men, etc., and yet not be the author of their sin. It is not to be understood, says he, as if God found men good, wise, intractable, and then made them wicked, foolish, and obstinate. But God, finding them depraved, judicially and powerfully excites them, just as they are, unless it is his will to regenerate any of them. And by thus exciting them, they become more blind and obstinate than they were before. See this whole subject debated at large in the places last referred to. Position 3. God, as the primary and efficient cause of all things, is not only the author of those actions done by his elect as actions, but also as they are good actions, whereas, on the other hand, though he may be said to be the author of all the actions done by the wicked, yet he is not the author of them in a moral and compound sense, as they are sinful, but physically, simply, and sensu diversio, as they are mere actions abstractedly from all consideration of the goodness or badness of them. Although there is no action whatever which is not in some sense either good or bad, yet we can easily conceive of an action purely as such without adverting to the quality of it, so that the distinction between an action itself and its denomination of good or evil is very obvious and natural. In and by the elect, therefore, God not only produces works and actions through his almighty power, but likewise through the salutary influences of his spirit, first makes their persons good, and then their actions so too. But in and by the reprobate, he produces actions by his power alone, which actions, as neither ensuing from faith, nor being wrought with a view to the divine glory, nor done in the manner prescribed by the divine word, are on these accounts properly denominated evil. Hence we see that God does not immediately and per se infuse iniquity into the wicked, but as Luther expresses it, powerfully executes them to action and withholds those gracious influences of his spirit without which every action is necessarily evil. That God either directly or remotely excites bad men as well as good ones to action cannot be denied by any but atheists or by those who carry their notions of free will and human independency so high as to exclude the deity from all actual operation in and among his creatures which is little short of atheism. Every work performed, whether good or evil, 
is done in strength and by the power derived immediately from God himself in whom all men live, move and have their being Acts 17.28 As at first without him was not anything made which was made so now without him is not anything done which is done we have no power or faculty whether corporal or intellectual but what we received from God subsists by him and is exercised in subserviency to his will and appointment it is he who created preserves actuates and directs all things but it by no means follows from these premises that God is therefore the cause of sin for sin is nothing but illegality want of conformity to the divine law 1 John 3 4 a mere privation of rectitude consequently being itself a thing purely negative it can have no positive or efficient cause but only a negative and deficient one as several learned men have observed every action as such is undoubtedly good it being an actual exertion of those operative powers given us by God for that very end God therefore may be the author of all actions as he undoubtedly is and yet not be the author of evil inaction is constituted evil three ways by proceeding from a wrong principle by being directed to a wrong end and by being done in a wrong manner now though God as we have said is the efficient cause of our actions as actions yet these actions commence sinful that sinfulness arises from ourselves suppose a boy who knows not how to write has his hand guided by his master and nevertheless makes false letters quite unlike the copy set him though his preceptor who guides his hand is the cause of his writing at all yet his own ignorance and unskillfulness are the cause of his writing so badly just so God is the supreme author of our actions abstractedly taken but our own vitality is the cause of our acting amiss I shall conclude this article with two or three observations and one I will infer that if we would maintain the doctrine of God's omnipotence we must insist upon that of his universal agency the latter cannot be denied without giving up the former disprove that he is almighty and then we will grant that his influence and operations are limited and circumscribed Luther says God would not be a respectable being if he were not almighty and the doer of all things that are done or if anything could come to pass in which he had no hand God has at least a physical influence on whatsoever is done by his creatures whether travail or important, good or evil. Judas has truly lived, moves and has his being from God as Peter, and Satan himself as much as Gabriel. For to say that sin exempts the sinner from divine government and jurisdiction is abridging the power of God with a witness, nay, is wrathing it from its very foundations. 2. This doctrine of God's omnipotence 
has a native tendency to awaken in our hearts that reverence for and fear of the divine majesty, which none can either receive or retain but those who believe him to be infinitely powerful and to work all things after the counsel of his own will. This goodly fear is a sovereign antidote against sin, for if I really believe that God, by his unintermitted operation upon my soul, produces actions in me which, being simply good, receive their malignancy from the corruption of my nature, and even those works that stand opposed to sins are more or less infected with this moral leprosy. And if I consider that, should I yield myself a slave to actual iniquity? God can, and justly might, as he has frequently done by others, give me up to a reprobate mind, and punish one sin by leaving me to the commission of another. Surely such reflections as these must fill me with awful apprehensions of the divine purity, power, and greatness, and make me watch continually, as well as against the inward risings, as the outward appearance of evil. 3. This doctrine is also useful as it tends to inspire us with true humility of soul, and to lay us as impotent dust and ashes at the feet of a sovereign omnipotence. It teaches us what too many are fatally ignorant of, the blessed lesson of self-despair, that is, that in a state of unregeneracy, our wisdom is folly, our strength weakness, and our righteousness nothing worth, and that therefore we can do nothing, either to the glory of God or the spiritual benefit of ourselves and others. But though the ability which he giveth that in him our strength lieth, and from him all our help must come. Supposing we believe that whatsoever is done below or above, God doeth it himself. That all things depend, both as to their being and operation, upon his omnipotent arm and mighty support, that we cannot even sin, much less do any good thing, if he withdrew his aid and that all men are in his hand, as clay in the hand of the potter. I say, did we really believe all these points, and see them in the light of the divine spirit? How can it be reasonably supposed that we could wax insolent against this great God? Behave contemptuously and superciliously in the world, or boast of anything we have or do, Luther informs us that he used frequently to be much offended at this doctrine because it drove him to self-despair, but that he afterwards found that this sort of despair was solitary and profitable, a near akin to divine grace. 4. We are hereby taught not only humility before God, but likewise dependence on Him and resignation to Him. For if we are thoroughly persuaded that of ourselves and our, our own strength we cannot do either good or evil, but that being originally created by God, we are incessantly supported, moved, influenced, and directed by Him, this way or that as He pleases, the natural inference from hence 
will be that with simple faith we can cast ourselves entirely as on the bosom of his providence, commit all our care and solicitude to his hand, praying without hesitation or reserve that his will may be done in us, on us, and by us, and that in all his dealing with us he may consult his own glory alone. This holy passiveness is the very apex of Christianity. All the desires of our great Redeemer himself were reducible to these two, that the will of God might be done, and that the glory of God might be displayed. These were the highest and supreme marks at which he aimed throughout the whole course of his spotless life, and inconceivably tremendous sufferings. Happy thrice happy that man who hath thus far attained the mind that was in Christ. 5. The comfortable belief of this doctrine has a tendency to excite and keep alive within us that fortitude which is so ornamental to and necessary for us while we abide in this wilderness. For if I believe with the Apostle that all things are of God, 2 Corinthians 5.18, I shall be less liable to perturbation when afflicted and learn more easily to possess my soul in patience. This was Job's support. He was not overcome with rage and despair when he received news that the Sabines had carried off his cattle and slain his servants, and that the remainder of both were consumed with fire, that the Chaldeans had robbed him of his camels, and that his seven sons were crushed to death by the falling of the house where they were sitting. He resolved all these misfortunes into the agency of God, his power and sovereignty, and even thanked him for doing what he would with his own. Job 1.21 If another should slander me in word or injure me in deed, I shall not be prone to anger when with David I consider that the Lord hath bidden him. 2 Samuel 16.10 6. This should stir up us to frequent and incessant prayer. For does God work powerfully and benignly in the hearts of his elect? And is he the sole cause of every action they do, which is truly and spiritually good? Then it should be our prayer that he would work in us likewise, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And if, on self-examination, we find reason to trust that some good thing is wrought in us, it should put us upon thankfulness, unfrained, and cause us to glory, not in ourselves, but on him. On the other hand, does God manifest his displeasure against the wicked by blinding, hardening, and giving them up to perpetrate iniquity with greediness, which judicial acts of God are both a punishment for their sin and also eventual additions to it? We should be the more incited to depreciate these tremendous evils and to beseech the King of Heaven that he would not thus lead us into temptation so much concerning the omnipotence of God. New chapter, page 71. The Justice of God. 5. I shall now take notice of His justice. Position 1. God is infinitely, absolutely, and unchangeably just. The justice of God may be considered either immediately as it is in Himself, which is, properly speaking, the same with His holiness,
or transiently and relatively as it respects his right conduct towards his creatures, which is properly justice. By the former he is all that is holy, just and good. By the latter he is manifested to be so in all his dealings with angels and men. For the first see Deuteronomy 32.4, Psalm 92.15. For the second see Job 8.3, Psalm 145.17. Hence it follows that whatever God either wills or does, however it may at first sight seem to clash with our ideas of right and wrong, cannot really be unjust. It is certain that for a season he sorely afflicted his righteous servant Job, and on the other hand enriched the Sabines, an infidel and lawless nation, with a profusion of wealth and a series of successes before Jacob and Esau were born, or had done either good or evil. He loved and chose the former and reprobated the latter. He gave repentance to Peter and left Judas to perish in his sin. And as in all ages, so to this day, he hath mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardeneth. In all which he acts most justly and righteously, there is no iniquity with him. Position 2. The deity may be considered in a threefold view, as God of all, as Lord of all, and as Judge of all. 1. As God of all, he created, sustains, and exhilarates the whole universe, causes his sun to shine, and his rain to fall upon the evil and the good, Matthew 5, and is the preserver of all men, 1 Timothy 4.10. For as he is infinitely and supremely good, so also is he communicative of his goodness, as appears not only from his creation of all things, but especially from his providential benignity. Everything has its being from him as creator and its well-being from him as a bountiful preserver. 2. As Lord or Sovereign of all, he does as he will and has a most unquestionable right to do so with his own and in particular fixes and determines the everlasting state of every individual person as he sees fit. It is essential and absolute sovereignty that the sovereign have it in his power to dispose of those over whom his jurisdiction extends, just as he pleases, without being accountable to any. In God, whose authority is unbounded, none being exempt from it, may with the strictest holiness and justice, love or hate, elect or reprobate, save or destroy any of his creatures, whether human or angelic, according to his own free pleasure and sovereign purpose. 3. As judge of all, he ratifies what he does as Lord by rendering to all according to their works, by punishing the wicked and rewarding those whom it was his will to esteem righteous and make holy. Position 3. Whatever things God wills or does are not willed and done by him because they were in their own nature and previously to his willing them just and right, or because from their intrinsic fitness he ought to will and do them. But they are therefore just and right and proper because he, who is holiness itself, wills and does them. Hence Abraham looked 
upon it as a righteous action to slay his innocent son. Why did he so esteem it? Because the law of God authorized murder? No, for on the contrary, both the law of God and the law of nature preemptory forbade it. But the holy patriarch well knew that the will of God is the only rule of justice, and that what he pleases to command is, on the very account, just and righteous. Position 4. It follows that although our works are to be examined by the revealed will of God and be denominated materially good or evil, as they agree or disagree with it, yet the works of God himself cannot be brought to any test whatever. For his will being the grand universal law, he himself cannot be, properly speaking, subject to or obliged by any law superior to that. Many things are done by him, such as choosing and reprobating men without any respect had to their works, suffering people to fall into sin when, if it so pleased him, he might prevent it, leaving many backsliding professors to go on and perish in their apostasy, when it is his divine power to sanctify and set them right, drawing some by his grace and permitting many others to continue in sin and unregeneracy. Condemning those to future misery whom, if he pleased, he could undoubtedly save, and with innumerable instances of the like nature which might be mentioned, and which, if done by us, would be apparently unjust, inasmuch as they would not square with the revealed will of God, which is the great and only safe rule of our practice. But when he does these and such like things, they cannot be holy, equitable, and worthy of himself. For, since his will is essentially and unchangeably just, whatever he does in consequence of that will must be just and good likewise. From what has been delivered under this fifth head, I would infer that they who deny the power God has of doing as he will with his creatures and exclaim against unconditional decrees as cruel, tyrannical, and unjust either know not what they say nor whereof they affirm, or are willful blasphemers of his name, who perverse rebels against his sovereignty, to which at last, however unwillingly, they will be forced to submit. New chapter, page 74. The Mercy of God. 6. I shall conclude this introduction with briefly considering, in the sixth and last place, the mercy of God. Position 1. The deity is, throughout the scriptures, represented as infinitely gracious and merciful. Exodus 34.6, Nehemiah 9.17, Psalm 103, verse 8, 1 Peter 1.3. When we call the divine mercy infinite, we do not mean that it is, in a way of grace, extended to all men without exception. And supposing it was, even then, it would be very improperly denominated, infinite, on that account. Since the objects of it, though all men taken together, would not amount to a multitude strictly and properly infinite. But that his mercy towards his own elect, as it knew no beginning, so it is infinite in duration, and shall know neither period nor intermission. Position 2. 
Mercy is not in the deity, as it is in us, a passion or affection, anything of that kind being incompatible with the purity, perfection, independency, and unchangeableness of his nature. But when this attribute is predicated of him, it only notes his free and eternal will or purpose of making some of the fallen race happy by delivering them from the guilt and dominion of sin and communicating himself to them in a way consistent with his own inviolable justice, truth, and holiness. This seems to be the proper definition of mercy as it relates to the spiritual and eternal good of those who are its objects. Position 3. But it should be observed that the mercy of God, taken in its more large and indefinite sense, may be considered, one, as general, and two, as special. His general mercy is no other than what we commonly call his bounty, by which he is more or less providentially good to all mankind, both elect and non-elect. Matthew 5.45, Luke 6.35, Acts 14.17, and Acts 17.25 and verse 28. By his special mercy he, as Lord of all, hath in a spiritual sense compassion on as many of the fallen race as are the objects of his free and eternal favor, the effects of which special mercy are the redemption and justification of their persons through the sanctification of Christ, the effectual vocation, regeneration, and sanctification of them by his Spirit, the infallible and final preservation of them in a state of grace on earth and their everlasting glorification in heaven. Position 4. There is no contradiction, whether real or seeming, between these two assertions. One, that the blessings of grace and glory are peculiar to those whom God hath, in his decree of predestination, set apart for himself. And two, that the gospel declaration runs, that whosoever wills may take of the water of life freely. Revelation 22.17 Since in the first place none can will or unfrainedly and spiritually desire a part of these privileges but those whom God previously makes willing and desirous and secondly that he gives this will to and excites this desire in none but his own elect position 5 since ungodly men who are totally and finally destitute of divine grace cannot know what this mercy is nor form any proper apprehensions of it much less by faith embrace and rely upon it for themselves. And since daily experience, as well as the scriptures of truth, teaches us that God doth not open the eyes of the reprobate, as he doth the eyes of his elect, nor savingly enlighten their understandings. It evidently follows that his mercy was never from the very first designed for them neither will it be applied to them, but both in designation and application it's proper and peculiar to those who only are the predestinated to life, as it is written, the election hath obtained and the rest were blinded. Romans 11.7 Position 6 The whole work of salvation together with everything that is in order to it or stands in connection with it is sometimes in scripture conspired under the single term mercy 
to show that mere love and absolute grace were the grand cause why the elect are saved, and that all merit, worthiness, and good qualifications of theirs were entirely excluded from having any influence by the divine will why they should be chosen, redeemed, and glorified above others. When it is said, He hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, Romans 9, it is as much as if the apostle had said, God elected, ransomed, justified, regenerates, sanctifies, and glorifies whom he pleases. Every one of these great privileges being briefly summed up and virtually included in that comprehensive phrase, He has mercy. Position 7. It follows that whatever favor is bestowed on us, whatever good thing is in us or wrought by us, whether in will, word, or deed, and whatever blessing else we receive from God, from election quite home to glorification, all proceed merely and entirely from the good pleasure of his will and his mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. To him, therefore, the praise is due, who putteth the difference between men and man, by having compassion on some and not on others. New section, page 76. The doctrine of absolute predestination stated and asserted. Chapter 1. Wherein the terms commonly made use of in treating of the subject are defined and explained. Having considered the attributes of God as laid down in Scripture, and so far cleared our way to the doctrine of predestination, I shall, before I enter further on the subject, explain the principal terms generally made use of when treating of it. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.